I was employee number 28, but late startup to IPO cycle. So what I want to do is, is I want to really see how these companies get created that go to large markets uh, and are backed by VCs. I took the challenge of actually, you know, building building the organization out, and we built it to 160 uh, people in, internally and uh, some 40, 47 with a couple sub subcontractors. We were in a crisis, so we had to mobilize every single person who knew how to uninstall and install, you know, our software and and patch the fix. But it was basically one of the most awful days for for all of us. Hello, Sakari. How are you doing? Are you in your fancy office where is probably one of the best views in Silicon Valley of Finland in Espoo? Thanks, Petri, and thanks for having me on your on your podcast. And unfortunately, no. Uh, I'm looking at a pretty nice view, but at home, uh, and we've been working from home since the the start of this uh, this whole uh, coronavirus guarantee. Uh, and I guess we will not return, except maybe for you know uh, really small meetings and and things where we have to personally go in and and sign documents for the authorities. I think we'll we'll stay out of the office for the whole summer. So do you actually need an office anymore? That's a good question. Uh, our, you know, our business is a lot of teamwork and you actually have to meet, uh, I'd say in most cases, you have to meet the teams you invest in just you know, to build a relationship uh, and just to get the read that people are really passionate uh, about their you know, idea and their business, and just to get a better feel of, of what you are committing to, you know, from both sides, as these are, you know, seven, eight-year commitments when you when you are a seed investor. So I think we still have to have an office, and we still have to have meetings where we where we talk business with the founders. So I take you you haven't done any deal without ever seeing the actual founders. Uh, so far. Not. And uh, even the current deals that are for the further along, uh, they are with founders that we have met or tracked for a little while. So if we make an investment, you know, in the coming month or months, uh, it's highly likely that, you know, we've met the founders and, and tracked the founders for a little bit. But I wouldn't say, I mean, your next question is probably, would you make a deal without ever meeting the founders? I think uh, the world has changed. And uh, with the current technology that is out there, um, you know, you, you have so many interactions with, with, the, with the founders, with the teams that are presenting ideas to you that I think it's, it's perfectly doable. Uh, I think we'll see many uh, seed deals, uh, maybe even later stage deals, done uh, without really physically meeting with the founders over the next six months, nine months. But when we can, and it's safe to meet people, I think everybody will prefer having a face-to-face -face meeting. Can you actually invest uh, outside of uh, Nudics? Because that's sort we of can. the new, new reality nowadays, that right. everybody's like 100 milliseconds away. Right, we can and we have. So um, we have one of our teams, um, in the US, uh, but that's that, uh, and that's the AlphaSense team. So, so we've we've invested into AlphaSense when the team, uh, the R and D was in Finland, but the, the team was in in the US, um, and we've done investments into Upload Care, uh, Xolo, uh, that are not, you know, located in in Finland, and we have some teams that are almost completely remote, like. Uh, uh, host away and uh, app follow where you know only a small portion of the team works from an office or offices and and one of the offices happens to be in Finland but yes we can invest in in teams that are not in the Nordics or or not in in Finland we actually cover these days um, the the Baltic countries and Finland pretty um, pretty like fine-grained comb. So we, we actually have a person who does research for us right now, both in Finland and in the Baltic countries.
what type of a SaaS company makes you excited? It's still, uh, you know, very much B2B uh, where um, the entrepreneurs can pitch an idea that uh, we feel has initial early metrics that we can look at and they have customers that we can call and verify the product market fit. Um, And if the team is really passionate about the idea, their product, uh, that gets us excited, meaning passionate about product, product product-led growth, um, something that can be taken to the large European or US markets that still gets us excited. We don't invest in all of these these ideas, you know, due to competitive situations or or just differences in in opinion. As you know, you know, investors always have an opinion, and it's not always the same as what the founders have. So we still have to have conviction, and you know, both sides have to come to to terms that we want to want to take that journey together. But product led growth, B two B SaaS companies that have initial metrics, uh, we look at a lot of those companies. When Depp started as an accelerator right. less than th- 10 years ago, what did you learn and, and you know, what's difference, you know, from, from that time where you're now? Uh, I, I think the story is actually quite exciting. And, and this is something that not many people hear these days uh, anymore. And, and we don't share the lessons learned from the early days that often we, we mostly share lessons from the current companies. Uh, but I think the, the, the story is worth telling. So, you know, maybe I'll spend the next five minutes or three minutes uh, walking you through that. So uh, let's go back, first of all, you know, 10 years to 2010. Uh, at that point, I was working for a company called Effecte, uh, which was in, in IT service management. And uh, I had run channel sales uh, for, for Effecte. And then, you know, there was a similar turn of events, not coronavirus, but, you know, a downturn in events, 2008 continued to 2009. And uh, a lot of that activity, meaning channel building activity, was scaled down. So I took products, uh, including product management and marketing and R&D, to run. Uh, uh, so I was back at a place where I had been uh, once before at, at Data Fellows, and I was looking for for new opportunities. And I met... Uh, Hannu Kytölä and Juppe Arala, who had put their companies together in 2010 to form an accelerator. And this was a perfect opportunity because they both wanted the same thing as, as I. I wanted to return to venture capital, uh, where I had been prior to Effecte. Uh, and we decided in 2011, so, so uh, it took us, we started talking, uh, I think, March. So, so... Uh, end of 2010, I had decided to leave Effecte, uh, set up my own company, which failed uh, in three months, actually. Uh, and then uh, met Han and Juppe in March. And we had, a, had a, you know, many chats over the you know, two and a half month period uh, that then led me to join them. And, and like I said, Juppe and Han had already put their companies together, formed an accelerator. And the accelerator idea was that you know, we'll take in a company, not companies, one company at a time, and we'll build the software product for that company. Uh, be it you know the founder and and the people he recruits, or be it a company that doesn't have anybody. It, it it could be an idea you know created by us or one of our friends, and we would just form these companies. And we did, or Hanu and Yuppe uh, had done maybe twenty of these companies already and we continued to do maybe 10 15 more so we had 35 companies in Finland and three or four in the US that we, we set up an R&D team for and then uh, started building the product and, and the, the entrepreneur then took it to to market and this uh, this model had a uh, had a significant flaw in our opinion so the flaw was that when the product was ready, it could be that the entrepreneur no longer really had a passion for that product. It was really hard to measure the commitment to an idea when you don't really have to. So we paid for the R&D, and that was our investment. Uh, when you don't really have your you know, hands in product development, uh, you don't have to take the risk of actually you know, living 
with almost no money uh, or raising money before the product is there. So our, our model in that sense was almost too good. You know, the entrepreneur could second guess and many times second guessed uh, his idea. Um, some of the entrepreneurs obviously, you know, pivoted, you know, gave good product feedback, but a lot of them, uh, you know, came up with another idea and then, then continued their ways. Uh, so we decided very quickly uh, in 2013, we had already a fund, but we decided late 2011 that we, what we want to do is, is really just build a pure venture capital company in Finland. And that's what we then did. Uh, did. So Hannu had launched the Vende brand 2002 with his own angel investment. So it was a well-known name. Uh, and we had a really great team uh, at that time. It was Juppe Arala, Hannu Kytölä, myself and Juha Litola, uh, an extremely talented software architect, CTO. And we formed the team of the first uh, fund, which was called Vendep Startup Fund, 5 million, raised from private individuals uh, and then take a uh, by the end of uh, 2013. And AlphaSense was actually the first investment. We made that fund and we continued to make uh, another nine investments, of which one has already been sold. And, and besides AlphaSense, we have Leadfeeder and, and Geosk uh, from that portfolio that have grown extremely nicely and raised follow-on funds and, and will pr provide great, great returns uh, for the fund. You mentioned you've been in the VC before as well, East Coast, uh, in Central Europe, and now in Finland. Right. How, how did you end up in the in the East Coast and what happened between those? So my career was, uh, from early on, it was really focused on software product companies. I studied in Aalto um, computer science and, and my major was software systems and then my, my minor was international business or you know marketing strategy things like this uh, and i was always interested in in software products microsoft was the company that i if not idolized i i thought that it's the best company in the world and and uh, they have the best best strategy uh, maybe not the best products but they have the best strategy in in shrink wrap uh, software products and and you know the oem model that they had for a long time before before the you know uh, office suite um so what I, what I wanted is, is to go to a similar company. And I ended up working for uh, F-Secure these days, but Data Fellows. Risto Silosmo hired me 2000 and, uh, sorry, uh, 1995, and I worked at F-Secure till 2001. And uh, at that point, I decided that, you know, now I've been part of the startup to, or late startup. I was employee number 28, but late startup to, IPO cycle. So what I want to do is, is I want to really see how these companies get created that go to large markets uh, and are backed by VCs. I thought that that would be a superior model for a small country to bootstrapping as, you know, our home market is so small. So really want to get to the VC business, um, did an MBA and use that year to really contact every single VC in Europe. And that year was 2002. Uh, and Tough times. Uh, yeah, not many people know. Uh, I mean, all the VCs know who are from that time, and there aren't that many. They know how tough, tough year it was. And I still remember 2003. I started early 2003 at TVM Capital. We still saw the first maybe six, seven months. We still saw companies from that time that had been able to survive somehow. Uh, and, and we didn't have a lot of co-investors at that time. We had a 128 million euro fund and we invested half into uh, basically hardware or systems, hardware-based based high tech um, and the other half into software. And I was an associate, an ent a resident enterprise software expert for the investment team uh, in Munich first uh, two and a half years and then two years in, in Boston and really loved that time. Uh, and worked on uh, mostly on, on A and B rounds, uh, less B rounds, but mostly mostly A rounds. Uh, and that was my my jump really into into VC. Um, and I still remember the the recruiting process. I mean, these days we've hired associates. We have a great guy called Timo Fellin in our team, uh, 
but you know the the list of applicants is long and it's tough to get into the industry because you have such a short time window you know before funds are raised usually you recruit partners and after funds are raised or during funds are being raised you recruit associates and uh, uh, I, I was told later that I was uh, there were two candidates uh, a German into a German fund and a Finn into a, a German fund and, and the Finn was then then selected but uh, I think we had probably 100 uh, I, I heard a number that was close to 100 uh, applicants uh, so I really lucked out I had another position it was more of a partner type position in a smaller fund but luckily I didn't get to go there because I think I learned so much at TVM Capital it was a large firm with life science um, these days doing private equity you know had the chance to really travel in Europe, uh, uh, all over Germany, uh, in Boston, New York, and really see what the VC business is like. And and that really sparked me to then do whatever I can when I return to Finland to get our kids into this this school system uh, uh, to really, you know, start my own VC fund with a couple of friends. That was what, what it uh, ended up being, but really to do everything to get back back into the business but so so the order was was germany munich first and then boston but you didn't actually go then to the one would imagine that you would then just move on to the you know to the west and go to the silicon valley and really you know get into right. the epicenter of things right our thought process was was such that when we left finland uh, in 2002 uh it was really a a decision we, we had two sons at that point so it was really a decision to uh, kind of uh, take a break, a bit of a break from work. Uh, my wife uh, was a was a researcher at that time, and she wanted to go back to back to journalism. Uh, so she started freelancing when we were abroad, and, and now works for for Lakari Lehti in in Finland, and, and and is a journalist. So her career turned out great. Um, but we really did a, 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 concert, a conscious decision to get our kids back into the Finnish school system by the time my oldest son would be nine and youngest would be seven. And then Mayu, our daughter, was born in, in Munich as well. She wasn't of school age. But our sons were in the German, German school system uh, and then in, in private German school in, in Boston. And that was the reason we didn't stay in the U.S. or go to the West Coast or start building build careers in the U.S. We really wanted to get the kids uh to the Finnish school system and to grow up in an environment which is very much the environment where we had grown. Uh, so we live, you know, 35 kilometers outside Helsinki. Uh, you can't call this countryside, but, you know, I'm looking at a field and, and it's a nice, nice small town called Kirkonomi. So pretty much wanted to set up our life, uh, life this way, uh, even before we, we started our tour of, uh, you know, Switzerland, Germany and, and US. You are partly part of the technology history as well. Uh, when you were doing your thesis, uh, you were looking for some companies to sponsor your thesis and, and, and get to the corporate world. Uh, can you elaborate a bit, you know, how that happened? That's, there are actually a few aspects to the story, but thanks for putting me on the on the history map, Petri. I think uh, you are as much part of the history, maybe even more with your, you know, trauma days and, and, and other stuff you've done, done in Finland especially. But let's, let's uh, say that uh, I have a rele- relevant part in the Finnish uh, security product history in the, in the sense that, you know, when... In '95, uh, I asked Hannu Turunen and Ilka Hidenheim of Stonesoft, founders of Stonesoft at that time, that, hey, could I do my thesis for you guys? Uh, I was a consultant for the Finnish tax board doing SQL forms and various other maybe small C programming things for, for the tax board. Uh, and I said, could I work for the research department, which was at that time developing security and database products? And they said, no. So I said, okay, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I'll then look for an opportunity to really uh, work with software products because that was my passion. Um, and I then went back to the university and talked to my professor, um, Professor Shosta Sulonen, who then said, okay, you know, happy to help. Uh, what do you need help with? And I said, uh, you know, 
could you help me contact shrink wrap software companies in Finland and help me do my thesis for them? And he said, I can help you with the contacts. There aren't that many. Uh, but uh, what would your thesis be about? And uh, we came up with the idea that, you know, I'll pitch um, that I can help you guys improve processes related to software development. And uh, we found four companies, uh, Brosco Systems, who had a product called Voyant, which was in uh, business intelligence, very advanced view at that time, was able to do cubes and, and all kinds of data slicing. And I pitched to them that I could help uh, in, uh, I forget what, what the stuff exactly was, but, but organizing their you know, product team uh, in a more, for growth, uh, in a more structured way. I had some background, you know, I had read books and really worked for anybody but Stonesoft. Um, and I pitched to the, Mika Sorvetula to the CEO and, and founder that, you know, this project would cost 50,000 Finnmarks, which is, let's say, you know, 9,500 euro, right? So, um, and Shosta had told me that, you know, you have to raise 50,000 Finnmarks for this project to work. We can get the, the rest of the money then through through the school. Uh, I was paid maybe, I don't know, 65,000 or something like this. So I pitched this uh, and uh, my heart was pumping when when I waited for, for Mika to respond. And I don't know what he saw in me, but he said yes. So so he he committed to 50,000 Finnmarks. And then I went to three other companies. I went to to uh, it was called Jayco Action at that time, Prometor Solutions later, and was sold. I forget to which language school, but they did, uh, and they still do. I mean, they they have very advanced language teaching applications. Uh, then I pitched to Date Fellows, um, uh, and then I pitched to Stonesoft. Uh, but I only got, oh, I only pitched five thousand uh, for each of those uh, companies, so ten percent of the price, and they still all thought about that for a long time. I still remember. I think Risto Silasma took a day to think about the price and me. Uh, you mean that it was too expensive? No, I, I, don't, I don't think it was too expensive. I, I think it was just thinking of the opportunity cost. You know, if I come in and, uh, you know, I work with the guys, you know, the, there's time that goes into improving things that he was not sure that I was great at improving. But he finally said yes. And then later on, I mean, he said that you seem like a sensible guy. Why don't you come and work for us and, and create a second product line in addition to antivirus for us? And, and that was, I think, the part of, of me being part of Finnish history because then uh, I was a member of, of the, the, the Datafellows team in a security company. I licensed uh, technologies from SSH. I had worked for Stonesoft, which was a security company. Uh, and then later on, you know, I worked as a sales consultant for Nixu, that is also a security company. And all of these companies are have being publicly listed, so I guess I've been part of the all of the publicly listed security companies in in Finland. But I, I think my part in in, in history, uh, and you might refer to what Finns know, the the fights between SSH and, and Data Fellows. Yes, that contract was the one that I helped Risto and and Tatulon and broker. But I think that story is is still has a kind of a knife in my heart that I don't want to go into that too much. If you yeah, and, and, and I don't think that's important. I think the important thing is as well that you put together Risto and and, yeah. and, and Tatu yeah. in, the, in the first place. Yeah. So you were sort of the initial initial uh, person to to put these two listed and and greatly and widely known companies founders and, together. And I mean, if we continue on, on this path, I think I think Risto was um, well. Well, we all know that he's he's part of Finnish tech history. He's, he's done many, many great things. And lately, you know, was the, was the chairman of Nokia. And he, by the way, has an excellent book. If somebody hasn't read the book, you know, it's in English as well. I forgot the name. I can probably put it in the episode notes. But that's uh, that's a brilliant book. Paranoid, how, Paranoid yeah. Optimist. Yeah, I've read, read the book and I, I can warmly recommend that that book. But I mean, if, if we mention what, one thing about my time at F-Secure, I think uh, being part of that history uh, and, and the company that Risto help create i think that is a, a very special time in finland um uh you know those were the those were basically the days when we started creating an industry that was exporting software and software products and there haven't been many uh companies as large as as you know 
F-Secure, yet out of Finland. And uh, the software exports have grown. And now as, as we are a SaaS investor, you know, SaaS companies export from day one, typically, um, you know, I'm, I'm really proud to be continuing this, this history. But in 97, we already started SaaS. We started, well, antivirus was SaaS all along, but we started uh, to experiment uh, selling security products through operators and, and, and Telia or Sonera at those days was our first partner. And I, I think that's also part of the, the history and, and, and the business model where, you know, you take a software product and turn it into a, a service. Um, so, so we took products that weren't initially service, but, you know, we tried to push all kinds of products into the channel. I think then later on it was clear that, you know, they have to be antivirus-like uh, products uh, where, you know, uh, it, 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 you don't need so much support. Uh, there's a clear need uh, to buy that subscription um, for people to buy. These days people can buy SaaS, but I think those days it wasn't so easy for people to commit to a, a monthly fee or a service fee. Yes, yeah, probably wasn't even difficult to get, you know, the payments at that time. Through operators, it was it was uh, quite easy, but obviously having a customer pay for something that they used to pay at one time, pay monthly, that was a difficult thing to thing to do. But you were the you were the product lead, or, or you had a instrumental role of having almost like half of the revenues of uh, FCQ at that time. Then they when they so, went to the IPO. Yeah, so 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 when I was hired in in '95, Rist asked me to create a second product line, and I did. Uh, I mean, that product line was access control, and and when I then started full time four months later in, in January of '97, I told Risto basically in our first or second meeting that this is too complex, and he just lifted the phone phone called the the people who were part of the project and terminated it and said, hey. Uh, what now? I think this was maybe a bit later than, than January, but let's say early spring. And I said, I have one idea. And that idea was that I had seen a fax where Tato Ulenen had registered his company called SSH. And uh, I, I then brokered the deal between between um, uh, Risto and Tato. And, and that's how I became the first you know, product lead or project manager or product manager, whatever you want to call. We didn't really have... I, I don't even remember my title, probably was project manager. But I became the product lead for, for that product line, which then spanned into five different products. And then later on, we recruited uh, more people. And uh, I think by, let's say, in two years, I became the head of product. So, so I took uh, overall responsibility for running all of the engineering um, inside uh, inside data fellows at that time, or was it already FCK? Probably inside inside data fellows, and I maybe had uh, at that point, uh, you know, uh, 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 I, I had to choose whether I wanted to be a, a product manager or lead people and 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 processes, and I I took the challenge of actually you know building building the organization out. And we built it to 160 uh, people in, internally and uh, some 40, 47 with a couple of sub, subcontractors. Uh, and, uh, you know, that was my, my run at, at F-Secure. So I was responsible for, for, don't remember the numbers exactly, but maybe, you know, three, three and a half million of cost every quarter. Uh, and then the product lines that I helped create the, the, from, from the SSH product. They grew to something like forty-five percent of our, you know, revenue before the IPO. So I still remember that. I think SSH was was uh, twelve million, and I think all the other products were maybe four million. Uh, I don't remember the prospect pro prospectors anymore exactly, but we was about forty-five percent of of our revenue. Uh, at at the time of our IPO, so that was a quite successful. Uh, addition uh, to the product line at that time. Obviously, they've changed. You know, the products are no longer there. They they were sold to to Pointsec in Sweden, and then later on, uh, Checkpoint bought Pointsec 
for a very good price. That was actually the same value that uh, F-Secure was at that day. Uh, so so PointSec made a really, really good exit with, with those products and their own products. Was Mikko Hyppanen already working for that day oh, Mi- when you joined? Yeah, Mikko. Uh, so with, with my thesis project, Mikko was running, uh, I think it was called Support back then. Mikko, Mikko ran many, many things, but Support. And uh, uh, met him at that time. And uh, yeah, Mikko's team, the research team was part of products for, for many, many years. So so I worked with Mikko uh, from... I'd say you know 95 or even earlier because of my thesis, but from 95 to 2001. Uh, and he's a great guy. He's an amazing person. Uh, Just recently, Mikko tweeted that um, he he was. I think he recently joined Data Fellows, and he was supposed to present something. And his presentation was, I guess, his home computer. He needed to to, to you know get from the meeting he was supposed to be the presenter and, and you know say that sort of guys you know I gonna do this uh, and then then the another thing was that he didn't actually have a car at the time so he borrowed his boss's car <laughs> and if that was not you know <laughs> uh, hard enough or sort of embarrassing enough uh, what happened later was uh, he actually crashed the car so you know imagine you're the guy who was supposed to present to the meeting you know then you know no it cannot happen i need your car and then whoopsie well now have the good news is i have the presentation but the bad news is your car is wrecked and the yeah. car was actually Risto Silas Mars. yeah uh, do do you have uh, i guess that was before your time probably uh, do you have any stories you know during your career where you were sort of maybe not not laughing at the time um There's one uh, I can I can well well I'll, I'll tell you two because the these these I, I think just give you an idea of, of you know what working for data fellows was I, I think so so no one was we were encouraged to make mistakes and learn from mistakes uh, and I think here uh, well the only mistake was you know to crash the car but it was the right thing to do to get the presentation and at least the rewarded people for for doing the right thing so so two stories i think from the fck times one is that i came a bit late uh, one let's say i don't know it wasn't the monday morning i know because it was during the week but let's say tuesday or wednesday uh so i'm coming in in late and uh, uh get to the door And there's immediately a person saying that, hey, Sakari, people wait for you downstairs. And I was like, what's going on? So I go to downstairs and there's people I've never seen, uh, which later on beca- uh, you know, became clear that we're uh, communications persons and, and legal persons. So what we had done is we were experimenting the previous month uh, with a new Antivirus update technology from from Israel, which was really really clever, sending small deltas, um, and we had made a mistake. So we had tested. We always tested things internally first. At that time, uh, uh, I'm sure this is done much better in you know these days, and we improved this greatly. But this just shows how how early it was in the software time. So we tested it, of course, in the lab. Did some regression testing, tested it uh, ourselves. And then there were initial customers that we sent the product out, uh, maybe 200 of them. Uh, I don't know how wise this is, but that's how we did it. Uh, and those two cu- customers, all of them, you know, were shut down because of this mistake. Uh, and we were in a crisis. So we had to mobilize the whole, every single person who knew how to uninstall and install, you know, our software and, and patch the fix Uh, we had to mobilize those and 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 go to customers, and I, we did this within uh, a few days. Um, but it was basically one of the most awful days uh, for for all of us, and and we thought it would be a much bigger crisis. I think we ended up in the news, not not TV news, but in the news uh, with this. And then the second time wasn't as drastic, but it was basically. Something that typically happens in, in, in product organizations. So you're in a rush to release something new. Um, and in this uh, case, it was a VPN product. And we wanted to support all of our customers, so even all the technologies. And there was a version of Windows 95 that we needed to support. And there was a driver technology that was really ancient, and not many people knew how to do it. 
we didn't have people in inside so i offered to speed this thing up to to purchase this from outside from a small finnish startup and uh, made the contract and they were very adamant about having a spec to which they want to confirm and i learned that this is the biggest mistake you can do program against specs i think what you always have to do is you have to actually verify it in the real world so we gave them a spec and they sent us a product that confirmed to this spec uh, and it turned out so that you know when you have other products installed on a computer the spec is not <laughs> it's a windows spec but it's it's not what happens in in real life and the driver did not install and it could not be used it was hooking into the wrong places so i called the guys and i said hey uh, you know we've made the payment uh, it would probably take you another week we can pay for that to fix this and they said sorry no we are raising funds we have to concentrate now on our own product we will not make that fix and uh, i said i can't believe this you know uh, we are in real trouble we have to release our product and we would pay for this you know is week or two weeks going to make a difference and they had only developed this product for like four weeks but full time they did nothing else because it was so critical to us um, and i i told risto this this same story and he said i can't believe this let's drive there and we drove <laughs> <laughs> we drove a bit of with bit of a like racing i think o- obeying speed limits but tr- trying to see who was there faster and when we got in risto sat down the guys told him the story he said he can't believe this <laughs> and the guy said well we are not going to develop any more code for you guys and uh, that was it so we were basically we were just uh we were amazed uh, at that point and at least again said to me what, what what do you plan to do and i said well don't have an idea this time uh, but we'll figure it out and then um what we figured is we figured that we have to actually recruit a guy like this and uh Mikko Hyppanen, uh, Ari Hyppanen, many others who had good contacts into the through antivirus research into the low-level developer like community. We posted this this advert and we found a guy, Jörn Sierwald in Germany, great guy, amazing guy. I think he lived four years or five years in in, in Finland. Uh, he saved us, so so he he basically developed the drivers and, and saved us. But uh, those are the two crazy stories from my history. So, so lesson learned: don't ever, you know, give somebody uh, a spec. Always reserve the right to get a working product, uh, and and make sure that you know who you work with understands and is flexible in in uh, you know really serving the customer need, not the spec, because that turned out to lose eight hundred thousand Finmarks. And I think that's the most I've ever, ever like lost into thin air that could could uh, never be recovered, never be used. Did you ever find out the reason why they did that? Did they know from the beginning that the spec doesn't actually really work, and that's why they sort of wanted it I, that way, and that, that's why they refused also to you know sort of fix it? So, so I, I've run into similar people after that, and and I think it's you you can test that a little bit, so you can test. Uh, I mean, I think they had integrity uh, at the in their own opinion. I think they had, uh, you know, very high high integrity. But I think during the development, they must have realized that this is not going to work because they they did have to install the product and they did have to install it into a, a real world, world uh, system. And I think there, maybe their integrity wasn't very high. They didn't, you know, let us know. They just finished the product against the spec and and that i kind of i I don't like that uh they could have told us that this is never going to work of course they didn't then you know get the money that they needed to raise funds and, and develop their own product um so i suspect that they they sincerely initially took the product pro, uh, project and trusted that we have done our our work like we had uh but the test harness or the spec uh flew out of the window i think the first or second time they did installations and they should have let us know uh because we had no way of knowing early on right because we we didn't have the 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 capability we didn't have the the early products 
and uh, it was such a rapid development and a small, small project, only one month, we did not really take care of talking to them every week or even every day. Uh, and at, at, during those days, you didn't have daily builds, you had weekly builds. So we would get a weekly build. Um, but I think we had, in the contract, I think we had probably, um, you know, said that for the first two weeks or three weeks, you don't have to send us build because they had to do so much. Development so, was so, so different at, uh, at that time. You've been pretty much all your adult career in products in one way or another, or at least interested of those. Um, what can you say? What what have you learned? What, what what kind of wisdom you can pass to the guys who are building something or you know consider doing something? So um, I think early on it's it's very it, if if you have a passion for something like I had for software products, I think it's key to change your career so that you get a chance to do what you thought you would be kind of built for, you would be passionate about. If you don't do that, you start doubting yourself. That should I have changed? And then there are, you know, many things that change. You you get kid, you have maybe kids, or you have uh, somebody to take care, you know, take care of, or you have uh, I don't know a mortgage, and and you need to stay in your job. So so as life goes on, you start building things that make it harder to to do these things. So as the the younger you are, or the younger I was, I, I thought I did many things. Uh, based on what I had wanted to do. And I was really hard-ass about these, like leaving Stonesoft and not taking a no for, for an answer. I think one these times, one thing I would do differently would be that I would uh, set up the company that I set up 2010. I would set up a company earlier on. Why? Uh, even though you don't have maybe the, all the knowledge, I think the, the chances of success are not... You know, higher or lower. I think it's so much about you know the team you build, the idea you have, the timing, the opportunity. Then uh, it's not the experience you gather. I mean, it, it can maybe increase your your chance of success uh, a bit at certain times. But I would encourage people to do and try things they are passionate about or that have a high risk at a younger age. Um, so so that's maybe the the, the first part, and then. Advice about just, you know, generally, I think, uh, generally, I would like to advise people who are looking into getting into the VC industry uh, to really think about, you know, what you can bring to a firm. Or, or I mean, some people can set up their own firm and, and that's fine. Or, or can, you know, start small like we did with a 5 million euro fund and, uh and create a track. You still have to find the 5 million euros. It's it's not not easy, but maybe you can start with a million. But I would encourage people to do two things. Think about what you can bring to this industry and find a firm that would take you on into a salaried position because I think that will give you uh, the status that you are actually a, a member who, are, who is expect, expected to contribute. And if you are doing a job where you know you, know, you are great, say... Uh, like I went into TVM, being a, an enterprise software expert, what I contributed was all of those things that I had learned through the FCQ IPO. Uh, not all of, all people have uh, a lucky career like that, but every one of us has some lessons learned and, and some relevant industry that we can contribute to a VC. There are so many VCs, so many firms, so many specific uh, areas that we can contribute to. So I would try to get a uh, a salaried position, you know, where I can contribute my knowledge in a VC firm, and then uh, use that to either to move to another firm uh, or to take the next step inside that firm if that firm is a, a firm that you know supports my my passion. But it's really hard to get in, and if you get a uh, if you get a get an internship position. The challenge there is that VC is a long-term business, and in a few months, it's really hard to contribute or to show that you have things to contribute. And you can maybe do a functional thing or a little bit of deal flow, but you don't have time to show that you can really contribute to the team. And I mean, that's what I want to sh share. So, so and encourage everybody to 
to contact us and all, all of the firms. But please, you know, write down what you can really bring for the team, not just that, you know, I'm a great guy. Uh, we get applications like that uh, all the time, but we don't get applications that really outline that, hey, here's how I uh, help you as, as, for instance, Vendep is a SaaS investor, for instance. So you're saying that they're saying that I'm good at these things, but they're not saying that, hey, you, you can get these and these amazing, uh, you know, benefits if you if you hire me. So so let me, so we hired Artis uh, into our team uh, early this year. Uh, and uh, we always have a, we call it a, a, a student position, but we have a salary position for a student. Artis is not, Artis is actually uh, somebody who's, who has a great educational background uh, and and is already a, a pro in, in a sense, but he was looking, because he traveled to a foreign country, he was looking for a position that he could take on in between uh, jobs or, or maybe for a future career. So, so Artis uh, has done uh, a lot of research for us in the SaaS space, and uh, he was able to pitch himself uh, through... Uh, the things and people and companies he had met at TechChill uh, as a perfect candidate. And uh, he did a great job. So, And he's had that impact on us. He's been, been even even more impactful ta- than uh, what we thought. So, so we really like these types of applicants. We just don't have... We have only one student or this, you know, like a part-time position open... Um, and we are not hiring anybody if that person wants to continue with, with us. But that's the way to to get into our firm, and I think to to many other VC firms. You know, show your impact. Okay, this is what I could do, and ask for a salary position, not an uh, internship for a month or two months, because then you might not have time to show how valuable you are. How would you advise someone who has a startup doing SaaS to choose? Which way to go? Bootstrap, angels, or really consider taking VC in, and and how to pick the the right company? SaaS is great because I, I think you can exactly you know uh, plan your path the way you want. Uh, so if you are if you are a person who wants to take on the world for sure, I mean, and you see this as a project. Uh, you don't have to do this, you know, after, let, let's say you are on, on your drawing board. Uh, at that point, you have to consider, um, you know, uh, is the world going to wait? So, so, and what is my world? Uh, uh, and now I'm kind of referring to the market, if it's a niche. Uh, so, so if your world is large, I think still these days, um, the, the best choice is to raise VC funds, uh, meaning that, you know, raise some angel funds and, and clearly get onto the path of raising seed, Series A, Series B, and, and so on, and plan your company that way. What you, the choices you make doing, uh, doing it this way are choices where you try to go after the largest market, uh, you do a lot more strategy work, you, you focus a lot more on metrics. So, so uh, if you are that type of a person who is capable and willing to do all of this by any means, you know, plan a VC-backed business. But if you are not, meaning that you are not sure yet what you do, you are happy with a you know, good standard of living and more kind of the entrepreneurial uh company that serves a local business and your family, then bootstrapping, maybe raising some angel money. But at that point where you have not made this decision to create a project that raises funds, uh, I think your best choice is to, you know, recruit good people, advisors, and first make up your own mind because there's no, you know, it's your company. Uh, if you want, want to 100% of it or 60% of it or 51% to control it till the end, uh, then, you know, re- build that t- kind of a company. But don't then enter the, the VC path before you have decided that this is a project and I'm willing to raise funds, recruit other, other people 
even at some point uh, changing my job from, say, CEO to the chief product person or marketing person or, or another role. Because what VCs need to do um, is, you know, have company, create companies that have a chance of returning their fund. And that means that, you know, you have to raise further funding rounds and you have to try to grow to be as big as you can. And ultimately, you have to have a liquidity event within the, the lifespan of a typical VC fund, which is 10 years or if you are into the investment period, maybe, you know, seven, eight years. Uh, now we're talking about seed seed investment. So I would advise first to figure out what you want to do. If you're not sure, then don't raise VC funds. <laughs> You see a lot of deals, you do a lot of deals, mm. you structure deals. What are the things to be concerned about and, and you know what can go wrong from the founder's the, perspective? These, these days, I, I, I tend to talk about uh, two things. I think um, the number one thing that we test is this commitment that I said. We test that the founders are on the same path, that they are planning to raise that next funding round and they understand that VCs need a return. So what we do is, is during those discussions, uh, we both set a plan, call it the business plan or a part of a business plan, but we set a plan that, hey, these are the improvements that we want to make to create value over the next 12, 18 months. And typically they are two categories, so personnel and product related. Sometimes, you know, you have to grow the market, so you have to have to really um, make make larger changes in order to, for instance, if you ha- if you have to, have to enter the U.S. market to really be in a billion dollar market, then that could be even a larger change than just personally. It could mean that you know founders have to move or or things like this. But let's say we we say that okay, o- over the next twelve months, these are the gaps in in team. Let's hire. These are the gaps in product or that we lack a second product or modules to upsell so that we can ramp up our ARR. So let's do all of these things. And with those things that we've decided, these are the metrics or this is the goal where we want to be. And this is the amount of money we likely want to raise to then do the next leap. So we set a vision where there's a short term, you know, 12, 18 month goal, you know, metrics team, that's where you want to be. And then a bigger goal, uh, but not that long term, maybe two, three years out where you want to be after the Series A race. So we all look at the market and look at the company the same way. Short term, you know, these are the things we execute on. Uh, these are the issues we, we solve. And long term, this is the vision we are now uh, looking at. These are the scenarios that we estimate that we'll plan out and we'll k- keep tabs to change them when you know, competitors release products or markets change. But that's roughly how, you know, how we do it. You are a product person. Yeah. You've seen so many products. You've been building so many products. What have you learned? So, uh, yeah, and I'm really passionate about the product. I think these days I'm, I'm trying to read as much as I can about product-led growth and, and still learn about product. It seems that you always have something to learn. But I, I can for sure... <laughs> tell a couple of lessons first first off you know the bat is that you know best product doesn't always win uh, and i would say that the definition of best product can't come from if, if you are the competitor to the category leader you can't say that you have the best product because the customers have already elected to use the product that the category leader has has so what you can do, if you want to be the better product, you can differentiate yourself and get those customers that feel that your product is a better fit for them to jump from that market leader or category leader to your product. So what I've learned is that best product is really difficult to define, but it is relatively easy to figure out how to differentiate yourself on the market from the other products. Uh, and then price and, you know, set uh, the, uh, say the product 
to the market differently. Uh, what our companies do today and, and how you differentiate with product the easiest is is to typically just you know the sales process. So if you if you have a competitor that sells their product for 100k, you know why don't you start selling your product at you know 30k, you know self onboarding uh, to the the customer segment that doesn't want the 100k product but wants a lot of those features and that way you differentiate and carve out uh, maybe not the largest portion of the market, but you carve out a portion of the market that is available to you uh, and can be differentiated for. Um, and, and there are many, many other things. Uh, uh, the, the second thing that I've learned is that, you know, pricing. So first one was uh, best product doesn't always win. And, and the second is that, you know, Pricing is really an atomic bomb. So once you touch pricing, it's really hard to go back. So if you increase prices, do it to a small group or test it out for a few weeks. But don't commit to things before testing out. And certainly, you know, when you give discounts, control the discounts and don't, you know, lower the, the whole product and make it too good. Uh, at a cheap price because it's really, really difficult to go back on your existing customers with a higher price. Uh, and uh, that's how you can destroy a lot of value by by lowering or increasing the price to for too long a period or to too many of your existing uh, customers. So, so those lessons, I think anybody can believe instantly and, uh, um, and product organizations typically run into uh, then finally, um, it's uh, so. So if we look at uh, marketing, this is a more difficult, uh, difficult uh, uh, thing to explain. But uh, generally, I would say that uh, all mark so so all marketing should should lead to some kind of a call to action that proves to the customer in, in, in ways in which he expects, say, a demo or a trial or a video or a content piece, that he will get the value he's looking for from your product and that he gets it at specific point or with specific use and he can get there. And I think this, to me, in marketing is key. All of the other marketing, to me, is, is soft brand type marketing that does not lead to uh, easily measurable you know revenue or conversion metrics I like marketing that is hardcore you know course to action get to this demo take this free trial and drives the customer to a point where the value is clear and sales can convert them or the product uh, itself converts the customer uh, to a paying user or paying customer. And I think those three things are key learnings from the from the uh, from the product teams to me uh, still these days. And I think uh, lately, what I've been digging into more and more, and, and we have a webinar coming up uh, from in, in August about this, is pricing um, because setting right pricing is so difficult. Uh, but there are good tools to do this. And I think I'll be, I'll be talking with uh, one of our company chief product officers about this in, in, in that webinar. But pricing and monetization, to me, uh, over the past nine, 10 months uh, has been really eye-opening. And, and there, uh, you know, Patrick from ProfitWell uh, has really been the guy who's, who's uh, produced content uh, and explained it so that it doesn't feel soft. It's it's uh, facts, fact based, and uh, it's really key to your success. Where is the sauce market going? We we just entered to the twenty twenty with with the bang, right? So what's <laughs> what's going to happen in the next ten years? What what we can expect in the next five ten years? That's an excellent question. I think. Um, so, so okay. Uh, what, what? Uh, I'll just tell you what we are kind of betting on. We are betting on 
that uh, countries like you know Finland, Estonia, Lithuania, and Latvia, which have you know engineering heavy, uh, education heavy cultures, and people are really proud about you know their work. Uh, they rather you know don't go to sleep if if the customer is not happy, but you know uh, make the product right or or you know get the right answers to the customer. Just make sure that people are, are satisfied. I think countries like like these uh, will will create great SaaS product to the international markets. Uh, uh, I think SaaS will be a great equalizer in the software world. So U.S. companies will still dominate and will acquire a lot of companies, but I think they will acquire a lot more companies from Europe than they have before uh, because of SaaS. And that is... Uh, because the products are already, you know, international from day one, most of them are in the English language, most of them sell to U.S. customers, uh, and that they are built with great engineering teams. I think SaaS will create great benefits uh, to the European countries. And I think we've seen this. Axel does reporting on, on SaaS companies uh, every year, and, and I think you can already see it in the, in the reports. Uh, what else? I think... There will be a whole new class of uh, product guys, uh, and I think I I wish if I was younger myself, uh, uh, I would I was building a product organization again. You know, it would be my dream to have, you know, all of the analytics, uh, all of the onboarding people, um, uh, all all of the the things that a multi-tenant single product can give to a product organization in terms of, you know, analytics and visibility to the customer uh, and the way you can react to the market needs. I think SaaS is just going to change um, the way um, uh, also other companies are built. So I think lessons from the, all the metrics, all these things will go into, into other industries uh, and will benefit them, them greatly. So are you saying... Are you saying that SaaS is going to eat the world? Software and SaaS are going to eat the world. Yeah, absolutely. I think <laughs> I think this is the way service businesses should be run. Uh, I think we just have a great product because you don't have to deliver anything. Uh, so software is very different. It's harder to take this into other other industries. But I think I just I already saw a recruiter sell sell their service as SaaS. Uh, it doesn't make me laugh. It actually makes me think. You know that if if they will be a winner. If that's the way you now give a happiness guarantee, you know, you charge your success fee over over several months and not in one go, that's a great service. Uh, so, you know, that's somebody who's committed to providing me the best person to my, you know, VP sales or VP marketing position. So I think SaaS will go into other industries. What is your favorite word? Oh, it's sauna. I go to sauna every single day. <laughs> what is your least favorite word? Coronavirus, for sure. What turns you on creatively, spiritually or emotionally? Mostly creatively these days, but I think I've watched more YouTube during the coronavirus time than ev- ever uh, before. As you know, we, we stay home. During the evenings, I, I, get my, I, I get many creative ideas from YouTube. So what have you created? Have you created some, you know, crazy stuff and now you're starting your own YouTube show? I, I, I'm not as skilled as some of the guys. So um, there's a channel called Stuff Made Here. I spent uh, last weekend watching all the videos and I was amazed by uh, the basketball board, uh, backboard that just makes every shot go in. Uh, but two things that I've created with instructions from there is that that's a, um, a 3D printer. Uh, I bought a kit, but still built all the uh, leveling equipment and everything, all the electronics, as it was explained in, in YouTube, and it worked great. Uh, and then I've built uh, a set of stairs in our garden uh, based on a, a, a YouTube video. Uh, they turned out a bit heavy, but the design is great. So uh, YouTube is, is just amazing. What turns you off? Today, uh, politics, for sure. Uh, I just... It just really turns me off. I mean, really, I, 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 I have become even more apolitical than than ever ever before. But I just, I don't know what to do. That's that's uh, just turns me off.
what is your favorite curse word? Uh, I don't curse a lot. I had that kind of an upbringing. But uh, if I do, I seem to say hito or dam. Uh, that's it. But I don't curse. What sound or noise do you love? I love uh, quiet sounds like, you know, wind, ocean, sometimes even just, you know, your air conditioning if you get the slow humming noise. I think those just, you know, calm me down. Uh, what sound or noise do you hate? Traffic. I don't like, that's why I live outside Helsinki. I don't like traffic. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Something where you discover things. You can tinker, figure out, and then you get that feeling of, of discovery. So I would probably be still a programmer and, and do data science. What profession would you not like to do? Surgeon. So really like open heart surgery, any surgery, actually. I... I've met several surgeons and uh, the stories they tell, it just, I would just be, I'm not built for that. If you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose? I would have loved Bill Gates to have called me and say, would you join us as a late you know, co-founder? So I still feel that from my youth that uh, Microsoft was the company to be at. Any final words for the audience? Uh, no, big thank you, Petri, for, for having me. I think uh, I wish everybody, you know, good luck uh, with the current situation. Uh, stay healthy and, uh, you know, uh, lead with passion. Do whatever you are passionate about uh, and do it today.